All right. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Unearth Podcast, Episode 2. Uh, today, we're going to be covering a few different topics. We've all got our own little topic, plus we've also got some written-in stuff that we're going to try and cover. Um, with me is Karim and Tom. Yeah, the boys. As will be always. Yeah, the boys. Yeah, the boys. Um, but yeah, I reckon we'll just jump into it. What do you reckon, boys? Sounds good to me. Alright, well let's start with you, Karim. So what's your main talk topic? We're all going to be talking about food-based topics today. And uh, Karim, you want to take us off? Uh, yeah, well I guess today uh, my topic I'm going to be covering uh, is what they like to call the the, the fifth uh, flavour element, uh, which is uh, umami. So um, in the flavour elements you've got sweet, sour, salty, and bitter. And, uh, yeah, they, they say the fifth one is umami, which comes from, uh, um, they say it comes from glutamate, which um, sort of was sort of discovered around about, I think it was like the 1908, 1908, a uh, Japanese chemist actually uh, discovered it uh, through... Um, uh, kelp, boiling kelp, seaweed, man. And then um, he later he got like a patent to make um, he got a patent to make um, like powdered glutamate on a major scale, man. And that's how we uh, have come to know MSG in the <laughs> in this present day. <laughs> oh, dude was revolutionary. <laughs> yeah, bro. It's like the Japanese Moby Dick. I was just absolutely gobsmacked by that that fun fact right there. Yeah, man, it's crazy. Me off guard. Like, I mean, I mean, it, it, it has, umami hasn't really sort of been, you know, it wasn't sort of. So we've known about it for that long, but it wasn't sort of like popularized until like the early two thousands. Um, you know, when when chefs were really searching um, for that uh, umami flavor, you know, like it's it's natural occurring, like it's. it's Foods with natural occurring umami, like soy sauce, you know, miso paste, um, cured meats, um, you know, dried mushrooms as well. Um, got uh, very high umami uh, uh, flavors, but um, yeah, so the early two thousands chefs sort of really started going and search for it all. Yeah, right. So. Um, yeah, makes that, me makes me want some magoring right now. Well, it, it, it's it's like it, it, it's it's that real savory flavor, you know. It, it leaves a real pleasant taste in your mouth after you know you've sort of eaten it. So, like, if you got um, you know like a soup that's uh, a soup base that's been um, sort of come from uh, like a real heavy bone stock. Um, you're going to get really, really heavy umami flavors through that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the Japanese, they sort of, because it's a Japanese world, I mean, but, like, essentially it's it's uh, worldwide. I mean, in, in, I guess in Italian cooking you can get, like, real umami sort of flavors through, um, like, a bolognese, you know, because it's got, like, your tomatoes, which are... Um, you know, natural in uh, your MSG, and then like your uh, real beefy flavor, your savory flavor through like whatever meat you use, or whether it be pork or beef or whatever, you know. 
Yeah, nice. But, um, like, I guess, uh, like I said uh, earlier, I sort of got it through um, uh, seaweed kelp. That's how they sort of discovered it. And, uh, I guess the classic sort of uh, Japanese uh, umami flavor would be dashi, which is like your base of like your miso, which is made of like a, a sort of boiling uh, seaweed at a certain temperature and then uh, adding what it's called uh, katsubushi, which is uh, dried uh, uh, bonito flakes to it, and that makes a real, real uh, heavy umami broth. But, I mean, like, you got, uh, like, Chef's uh, uh, Momofuku um, restaurant. So they've, they've got one, I think, in Sydney or Melbourne now. But Momofuku was uh, created by a chef called David Chang. And uh, in his um, dashi, he uses the, the seaweed base. But instead of the katsubushi, he uses a, um, it's a smoked, uh, smoked bacon bits. Oh, yeah. The dried bonito shape. That sounds yeah, delicious. Uh, make his dashi. Yeah, and then, like, then, you know, they can go on to use that dashi to, you know, you can, you can use it in, like, French cooking as well, man, you know, like, something like uh, to, to make sauces, a uh, sauce base for, like, you know, French sauces and stuff like that because you've got those real heavy umami undertones there, you know, it makes real flavors and sauces. Yeah, but you're going to have to be careful because Tom's dieting, so you should probably yeah, back off some uh, of these a little bit. Guys, I'm watching my weight right now, so I can't really be talking... Too much about this topic, <laughs> but is it right. essentially? So you did say MSG, so it's not it's not MSG, or is it a category of MSG? No, it's not MSG. So um, MSG is monosodium glutamate, which is the uh, the, the synthetic glutamate, um, not natural occurring. You know, so like um, I guess your MSG because uh, it's synthetic, it's it's got flaws, you know, it's, it's, it's problematic, you know what I mean? Like, it's been linked to, um, you know, you're feeling like shit. I reckon I've had MSG poisoning in the past. But I reckon... Any restaurants that we went to. I'm pretty but, sure there's uh, got to be research. Like shit afterwards. There's got to be research out there that it gives you nightmares too, because I reckon we had a mad feed at Yum Sings one night. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I have never, <laughs> I've never, ever had worse nightmares in my life. Dude, that, yeah, I that was, that was so uncomfortable that night. I had like the maddest headache, just like so thirsty, bro. It was, it was I actually, um, I think Yum Sing is actually Chinese for glutamate. Yeah, pretty much. Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. I'm, pretty I'm not sure. certain. It's either yeah, that or old wooden ship. The, they got a clandestine lab where they brew up the MSG for black market <laughs> purposes. I think it's ruining people's lives. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, like, um, there's a cool, there's a cool MSG, line. Uh, you know, I think it was like the seventies or something. Uh, I think it was in San Francisco, they were getting um, cases of what, like, essentially MSG poisoning. But like, doctors were getting, you know, people coming in with symptoms of headaches and you know, like, really thirsty, that they feel nauseous, uh, stuff like that. And they called it um, Chinese restaurant syndrome. <laughs> that's a scientific that's, name that's too. No that's a scientific name. Well, if name. um, if anyone has been affected, just call one eight hundred Yum Sing, and they'll uh, <laughs> they'll, they'll sort you right out. <laughs> yeah. 
So how do, how do, how do people get um, uh, umami, like, flavours in their cooking? Like, naturally, do you need to be an expert to do that? Nah, man. Um, I mean, you can just, you can go out and buy, like, a fucking wheel of parmesan cheese and you got, like, umami flavours, like, straight from that. But, like, if you want to essentially get it into, like, your cooking, you can use stuff like tomatoes. Uh, in the cooking, uh, soy sauce as well, uh, your miso paste. Um, you can make your own stock, your own bone stock, which, you know, you can use for later on, like you use uh, in braising meats or stews, and, uh, uh, the basis for sauces as well. So you can, there's a couple of different ways you can get those uh, mummy flavours. And then obviously, like I said, you, I mean, you can use... Uh, you can uh, get like shiitake mushrooms, man, uh, dried ones, and then like soak them overnight in some liquid, and then uh, take the mushrooms out and use them in, in like cooking or whatever. And then you got like a nice um, little, little mushroom sort of broth there straight away. Yeah. Mm. So we'd yeah, like nice. we'd like the bone broths and stuff like that. And I don't want to get off topic too much, but like, what are you using bone broths for? Mainly, and like, what kind of flavor comes out of that? It's the umami flavor, man. So, like, um, God, I think if I remember correctly, it sort of like tricks the brain into thinking like there's like it, it tricks the brain into thinking that there's like protein um, sources there because it, it comes from like you know your, your umami undertones are there, sort of. So, um, but I mean, yeah, that's your bone broth is essential when you come when you think about or well, you wouldn't call it a bone because you call it a stock or a bouillon mm. you know if you're talking french cookery yeah you know, um but uh yeah it, it, it's the it's a basis for like so many things if you want if you're talking vietnamese bro if you're gonna have a nice uh foe you need you need good stock you know Alaksa, yeah. in uh, malaysia you're gonna need really really good chicken stock you know, a little bit of coconut or your luxa paste, uh, coconut uh, milk, your luxa paste. So uh, you got mommy tones in all different uh, cookery all over the world. You know, it's just sort of come to light, like I said, in the 2000s and Japanese, uh, you know, they've known about it for ages. And, um, yeah, and bone broth's also good for your joint health, gut health. Um, yeah. Helps with detoxification and your immune system. So, I mean, it's one of the – it's a superfood, really. Yeah, that sort of started just sort of coming to light. I, I don't know he, I haven't looked too far into that. But, um, but obviously, uh, Josh, you you know a bit more about that. Oh, just a bit. Yeah, they've known bone about that for a while. Or is that sort um, of probably sure right they've now? they've known about it for decades, but it's just getting a bit more popular now that people are starting to take a bit more attention to their health. I think um, CrossFit was one of the big ones, big advocates for bone broth at the start. That's it. Well, maybe that's what my mum's doing when she sucks the marrow out of their bloody chop bones. Yeah, yeah she's crossfitting. <laughs> yeah, I think that's crossfit. Oh, I knew she was paleo before it was cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> did you know that, um, like, did you, did you guys actually know that uh, natural umami is one of the uh, first flavours uh, detected by newborn babies out of breast milk? Mm, yes, I did. Did you, did you know that, Josh? I did not. Because <laughs> yeah, glutamate is, uh, the, uh, is one of the most abundant amino acids in the breast milk. But how, how did they know? They say, hey, baby. <laughs> hey, 
Hey, baby. Uh, what's the first thing you taste? They got like these. They got these little Japanese babies sucking on their titties, <laughs> and they're just like, oh, oh, mommy, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! I'm not even gonna touch that. <laughs> uh, all right, Tom. <laughs> So what is your topic today, Tom? Well, look, that's probably a good segue into into my topic. All this, all this talk about <laughs> Japanese babies. Now, <laughs> um, nah, look, I, I obviously, a good segue, I think we were talking about MSG and Yum Singh, and it just got me all thinking about what I'm going to talk about, which is um, cheat meals. And um, obviously, it's a hot topic, hot topic for me right now because I'm getting my rig sorted. And um, subscribing to the Josh Burns School of Greatness, and uh, <laughs> and essentially, just I think probably there's a lot of misconceptions on what what cheat meals actually are, and I think people probably take them almost a little bit far, and we go to these cheat days. Now, now the whole principle behind the cheat meal and the cheat day, I think it starts from people in this this unrealistic thing with the ninety ten or the eighty twenty rule. Um, where essentially 80% of the time you do the right thing, 20% you can slip up. But there's probably a little bit more more to it that people don't really um, realise or understand. And that essentially, like, cheat meals were designed for periods of essentially dieting or when you're in caloric deficit or carbohydrate sort of deficit. And, and the principle behind it is that essentially after a few days um, of being on a, a, on a deficit diet, so basically losing weight, all that sort of stuff, is that we, we start to um, get metabolic slowdown. So essentially the hormones, um, the hormones in our body start to, to slow down and they're the hormones like leptin and ghrelin and stuff like that that basically regulate metabolism and fat burning. Um, yep. and, and it's interesting because what they say is even after as little as sort of three days um, of a calorie, calorie deficit or carbohydrate deficit, we start to see metabolic slowdown um, come out. And essentially, it's the leptin in your, your adipose fat tissue that starts to decrease. And it's something, something crazy stuff I read. It was like 30% um, reduction after even three days of deficit. Now, Josh, that might not be 100%, but if I'm wrong right, at any um, stage. It uh, fluctuates for a lot of people, but I'll have a lot of clients that if they're in quite a deficit, especially if they've got a high output with training, they'll um, they'll have essentially a refeed or, yeah, it's probably more of a refeed than a cheat meal, but a refeed on a Wednesday and a Saturday. So even my comp prep clients up until a couple of weeks out, they've been having refeeds twice a week for a lot of them as well. Yeah, and look, essentially, I think that's probably where the the jargon the term um doesn't really do it justice because it tends to be a refeed more than a cheat because cheating opens the the psychological sort of floodways for um going out and smashing foods with you know heaps of trans Trans fats fats. heaps of all the all that real nasty stuff when essentially it's designed to reverse the effect of being in deficit yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's uh, it's usually a ten to twenty percent surplus of their whatever their current calorie level is. So it's um it's not a free for all either. Oh, exactly, and and a lot of the literal literature out there says that like obviously there's profound reasons just for the hormonal side because you know a continued calorie deficit 
not only depletes those those hormones that regulate uh, that come from your fat tissue and basically regulate they're like anti-starvation um, hormones. They basically continued calorie deficit will start to mess around with your thyroid as well. So there's sort of certain um, hormones in your thyroid thyroid um, which regulate regulate your metabolism which will start to decrease and, and can start causing some adverse effects and some really bad stuff. Yeah, and that's why we get people that they walk in the door and they're on 800 calories a day and they're like, oh, I can't lose weight. And it's like, well, now we've got to kind of fix you before we can uh, even look at a composition change. So um, it's a longer process once they've done that to themselves. Yeah, look, and, and essentially, like, I guess, you know, they're the reasons why, like, what a cheat meal is and why why you do it, like, the cheat meal should be called a refeed. Um, yeah, and the, I think so. And the idea behind the refeed is to is to basically get that excess calories and carbohydrates back into your body. And because it has a reversing effect on that hormonal change or that um, hormonal change on the met- uh, metabolic slowdown that you've just experienced, and they reckon that that one cheat meal can have effects up to, you know, what, three or four days after? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of research that say we can have adverse effects from trans fats up to five to seven days after. So if you're having a cheat meal once a week, you're essentially not ever getting out of that slump. So my biggest thing with um, refeeds is minimizing your deep fried stuff, so your trans fats. Um, I suggest people that want to, I guess, experience those sort of foods, try and get an air fryer. They can mimic it themselves about the deep frying process. But um, that's one of the big no-no's. Yeah, and that, and that's the key. Like when you when you think about like what makes a good um, makes a good cheat meal or refeed, it is essentially sticking to a similar macro ratio, but increasing it. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. So we're increasing if, um, calories, increasing uh, macros with a bit more carbs. Yeah, and if someone's on a more of a like a keto based diet, then they'll be doing probably cyclical ketosis, which I'd suggest, which would be on the refeeds that they'd be a high carb meal. Yeah, and and, and obviously like it's different. It's probably different for everyone's different goals, and that's um, a lot of the stuff. The research out there is suggesting it depends on your body type. It depends on on your goals um, for your body and your fitness and stuff like that. Um, how how you refeed and how you cheat. Because there's some arguments um, for and against a cheat day. Yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, we're not preparing a fighter with the same food as we are a marathon runner. And they're obviously two extremes. But, um, you know, that it's going to be totally different and as far as the percentage of fats in the diet versus the carbohydrates, the poetic license on how clean every single thing needs to be. It's all going to be totally different. Yeah, exactly. And I guess... Um, when like what is what does a cheat meal look like for you, Josh and Karim? You're cheating probably every damn day, but what would what would your ideal cheat meal be? Oh, me personally, um I always suggest a pretty clean pizza. So um like a good a good um wood oven pizza, so like good life pizza down at Glenelg and you can get one that's got like organic chicken breast with potato and stuff like that and then um downstairs underneath that's frozen yogurt something like that so usually pretty easy but um what about you Karim? oh god cheat meal i don't know man like i like a lot of things but i I like um like sushi probably is one of my favorite foods that i probably don't get uh too often 
Um, yeah, that'd be another one for me. Yeah, I, I love I love me some sushi, man. Yeah, salmon nigari. Oh, bro, all over it. <laughs> That's so Asian. <laughs> That's so Raven. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm, girl, go and get that sushi. Well, look, I, I'm from for me, like honor the cheat meal. I'm going to be looking forward to is probably something with a little bit more pasta in it and a bit more carbs. Um, and then and a red wine. No, there'd be no red wine. But but apparently, apparently red wine is actually not that bad um, in your refeed. Just a glass. Oh, it's got resveratrol in it, but it's not enough to be significant. So there's a lot of other sources that would be better. But yeah, it's people trying to justify red wine. But Josh, it's not that bad. <laughs> 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 oh, it's like, I always say everything in moderation. Too much water can kill you. So, well, look, and, that, and that's essentially like this is um, refeeds are probably better. Um, they make more sense in in sort of stricter diets or like or meal planning, right? Is this for the meal planners? Um, yeah, because it's something like obviously it has the physical elements to it, but psychologically. It's it's good um, for the mental side too. Like obviously you're sticking Definitely. to a, you're sticking to a plan and regiment and whatever, and that is something you can look forward to where you're like, oh yeah, I'm really gonna have mad feed, really enjoy this. Um, do you think? Do you think that some people get like sort of real deep into it and they get to their sort of refeed day and they're like, oh yeah, I'm getting amped up for this. And they eat it, and then afterwards they feel like shit, and like you know, like plays a mental part. And they're like, "Oh, I wish I didn't do that." But that comes back into what did they eat, and what's the portion control of it? So, if it's still structured, we've got certain foods that are still off limit, mm. but they're still allowed to have something that they can look forward to. And that one week is, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel is not that far away. Mm. And usually, I suggest putting, um, if you're only having one versus the two put it on the weekend and you can go to that social occasion. You can let your hair down a little bit and you don't have to be that person in quotes, always dieting. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, it just gives that balance and you can kind of live your life a bit more. And I guess, and, and that probably like, obviously it's, it's part of a, a well-balanced diet or whatever your goals are. Like the cheat meal on the refeed is probably more for weight loss, right? We've got different, um, We've got different ratios and macros and stuff like that if we're trying to bulk up or if we're trying to be an athlete or like it just obviously depends on what stage we're at. Yeah, exactly. But essentially, you know what I mean? If you're in the, in the maintenance phase for, for doing sport or if you're in a bulking phase, like you're obviously incorporating a few more carbs and stuff like that and your metabolism is cranking a fair bit, isn't it? Yeah, but then a lot of people kind of treat it as a free-for-all as well and they, their off-season is a just-get-fat season. So you've got to have that balance. Yeah, well, there, there's obviously structure to it, but I guess that'll probably lead me into my next point and something I wanted to have a, a bit of chat about and just see where we were at with it is this um, idea of flexible dieting. And flexible dieting is obviously different to regimented sort of meal planning. And... Like, where, what, what's the force? Like, what's the pros for us? And um, where are we sort of against it? Oh, well, that, that topic could be a whole podcast on its own. But um, it's, it's, it's a hard one because you've, you've got two camps that are very passionate, kind of like two religions. So you've got the people that are the, 
I guess the clean eaters where everything's, you know, organic where possible and, you know, try to get this to be grass fed and try not to have too many trans fats and try not to have your processed sugars. And then you have the flexible dieting camp where they just say macros are macro, carbs are carb, fats are fat, proteins are protein. And if you really look at it like that, it's not. Do you know what I mean? Like if 10 mil of olive oil is not the same as I go eat 10 mil of some sort of trans fat deep fried sauce, it's not the same if I have an apple that has fiber in it as well as the fructose or if I go have high fructose corn syrup in liquid form. So I I think it has a place and if it can get people to be more accountable and they can build some sort of structure, it's good. But I don't think it's the best way to always do it. And essentially it requires someone knowing a lot about the food they're going to be eating or putting in their mouth because... Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like essentially... An example I've seen is like a chicken sandwich, if you look at calories, has the same calories as a donut. You know what I mean? A chicken sandwich with like white bread and all that sort of stuff might have the same calories as a donut, but it's not the same. Oh, but that's calories. Like, so the macros would be different in that scenario. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but they, yeah, so you, you have, um, like a lot of flexible diets will have what's called a flex bowl. So at the end of the day, whatever macros they have left, they'll put into the bowl. So it might be like a X amount of carbs, protein, fats, and they'll break it down. It's like, oh, so I can have one Pop-Tart, one scoop of ice cream, 20 mil of honey. And like, do you see my point? Factoring yeah. that in every single day is not going to be as ideal as if you actually got that from good sources like sweet potato and you had like rice and you had a quality grass-fed steak. And like, so they're very different ways of dieting but um that being said like it still has a place still serves a purpose i just my biggest negative with it is a lot of people that don't know what they're doing will use an app called my fitness power and they don't want to add in all the individual ingredients for like a nice recipe so they consume more processed foods because they can just scan a barcode and it just adds into their tally Mm. So that's my that's my negative. I, I think it still serves a purpose. I think it can be a great way to diet, and especially for the people that can't stick to anything like consistent. They just have to have that freedom, otherwise they just binge eat. Then yeah, it's probably good for them, and it's definitely a stepping stone. But I think intuitive eating, once you can get to a point where you don't even have that restriction of it, and you understand your portion sizes, and you understand the foods that are better and agree for you, and they're less inflammatory, I think that's a better way to go. Yeah, so it's just a, like a, it's a it's a long term education process done by being involved oh, being involved with what you're doing. You know, what I mean? Under, understanding what you need and what what's the best for you, and obviously, like there needs to be a little bit of give so people don't don't kill themselves over it. But essentially, it's just more understanding. I think as well, you know, like you see a lot of people they like oh. You know. I want to do this, I want to do that, you know, what, like when it comes to eating and training. But, you know, like I think they get to the point and they fall off the wagon because they're not genuinely interested in it, you know? Yeah, exactly. They're and they're um, interested in, as in, in what they are putting into their body. No, they, they want to appear as or they've got enough motivation to say that they want to do something about it, but not enough motivation to actually do something about it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Beautiful. All, All right. right. Well, I think that's enough on that from me, Yoshi boy. You're up. Cool. Um, so yeah, I was just mainly going to talk about um, pretty much that. Yeah, so sustainable eating. So basically how to, I guess, maintain a diet in a busy lifestyle, you know, social life, high work hours, high stress, and try and, I guess, have that balance and just some of the little tricks. So, um, yeah, well, anyway, I'll just run, I'll run through a couple of the tricks. So I chucked up a couple of dot points. So these are probably my, my main ones that I see people come unstuck with. Um, as we just said, understanding your macros and understanding your portions. So once you go from a, um, I guess, a regimented diet to maybe a bit more flexibility, almost, a, I guess, a flexible eating approach and then into an intuitive eating approach, that intuitive eating approach, you need to understand your portions. And I, I see it all the time. I'll have people and, you know, we'll go through X amount of recipes and stuff. And they're like, oh, I had no idea that that would be so many calories or I had no idea that that smaller meal was that many calories. And um, once you can understand your portions, you're, you're miles ahead. You go out to a restaurant and you can see it and you're like, yeah, that's a thousand calorie meal. It's not the 500 calorie meal I thought it was going to be. So um, that obviously is probably one of the biggest ones. Then um, some of the little tricks, drink enough water. Um, it's such a simple thing and people overeat all the time because they're dehydrated and they don't understand it. Um, little trick, go grocery shopping with cash. You have a better relationship with your food when you pay for it with cash than when you just scan a card. You won't and carry a basket. Don't get a trolley every single time. Mm. Um, or better yet, go to a farmer's market and actually smell the food and appreciate it more and eat with the seasons. Um, if you do have to have your treats and desserts, find things that aren't crazy calories. Like um, I had this lady and she would just eat perfectly every day, but all she had to have was her chocolate paddle pop at the end of the night. And it was like, I don't know, 70, 80 calories or something. It was nothing. Like, And that was all she had. And outside of that, she was an absolute machine. So, yeah, I mean, that side of flexible dieting is fine. Mm. You know what I mean? If you can just factor in something small like that, like a little treat, and the rest of the day is just, you know, A+. plus. Um, chew your food properly. Pay attention to what you're eating. Don't eat in the dark, staring at a screen. Actually, like if you want to watch some telly while you're eating, it's fine, but have the lights on and pay attention to what you're eating and make sure you chew it properly. Something people just don't do. They just gouge it down and then yeah, go to the next one. I'm guilty of not, not chewing properly and inhaling my food. Just because yeah, so, well, so hungry when I'm going to eat. <laughs> well, I was talking to a mate about it. And it's like basically your stomach then has to churn it up. You're helping and you're aiding in your digestion by chewing properly. Like it, it seems pretty basic if you start looking at it like that. Like you're making life easier for your body. You're going to absorb more of the nutrients. Mm. Um, get adventurous with your recipes. Um, like I think hot sauce is one of the best things ever. Experiment with some different ones of those. Some sriracha is, makes any meal better. Um, yeah, m- limit your deep fried stuff and air fries, you know, super cheap. Um, my partner uses it for everything she loves it and um, yeah the biggest one you know less processed foods and try and limit your sugar intake where possible I mean you don't need to add sugar to a coffee let's just start with that and if you're saying the quality of this coffee is shit and you're somebody who has two sugars with it then you don't know what you're talking about yeah. you need to stop drinking Nescafe yeah. <laughs> oh, in- international roads nah, you could probably get a Nescafe down 
Yeah, what is it, Blend 142? <laughs> <laughs> That's the one no one talks about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gary made that one and Gary got fired that week. <laughs> <laughs> Gary makes the shittest coffee. Yeah. I was, um, it's actually, I, I find coffee pretty interesting and um, the, you know, the big tins of coffee that we all grew up, they were always in the house. Sale of them has dropped something like ninety plus percent, and they will probably cease to exist in the next few years. That's it. Yeah, so everyone's going for like your little pods. They'll sometimes get the little glass ones, or everyone's getting their own beans and their own um, ground coffee. They're making it themselves. We're a civilization of coffee snobs these days. Mm-hmm. Eh? But it's good. We're getting good shit. That, you know, single store stuff and enjoying it properly. I mean, even like your Maccas and stuff like that, their coffee game step up, depending on which one you go to. But yeah, no, definitely. they got good beans. Yeah, bro. Absolutely. It's hard to get a coffee Stamp. in Alice Springs. I paid $9 for one the other day. So I'm just uh, getting pods from Coles and drinking them straight black. Oh, stock up your pods. Crim and I will be there in about three, three four weeks. Yeah. yeah bro. Why don't you bring me some pods, boys, some good ones? I just bring your bag of beans, bro. <laughs> what are I gonna do with beans, bro? Hey, it's not, them up, it's not Neil Diamond. I can't get jiggered to this shit. Chuck I've actually got it. I've actually got a grinder. It, they're, they're pretty easy to use, but um, it really does start to become a bit of a chemistry lab when you got your grinder out and then your French press and you put it into different containers and then yeah. you're letting your French press simmer. That's and then I had some butter. Some oh, you're on that bulletproof stuff, eh? Or is it just is this actual butter? Well, I use butter sometimes, like an unsalted one, but mainly ghee. But yeah, bulletproof for sure. No, oh, that's right. That's that ghee stuff, eh? Yeah, and then blend it up. Ghee's just butter that's had the um all the carbohydrates and protein like taken clar- out. Just your clarified butter. It's got taken the buttermilk out of it. It's yummy, yeah. It's very good. You like that better than normal butter? Who, me? No, Josh. Oh. I like how it tastes in coffee more than normal butter. Normal butter tastes good in coffee. I mean, normal butter itself in a normal serve has probably got less than a gram of fat. Uh, sorry, less than a gram of carbs, less than a gram of protein. So it's pretty much all fat anyway. But um, I, I like the ghee because I think it just blends a bit better in the coffee. Mmm. Coffee connoisseurs. Kind of yeah. Coffee? Yeah. <laughs> nightcap. Sure, I'll be up on the anti-nightcap. The anti-nightcap. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it doesn't affect me. Eh? I could go to sleep straight away. Yeah. No way. My 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 nightcap, bro. If I need to be knocked out, bro, give me like. Three pieces of KFC, bro. Then the homeboys got <laughs> itis, bro. So I get still still stomach, and then I'll fall asleep. You know. <laughs> I um just put just put the aircon on, and I'm out. Yeah. 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 I, I, yeah. I don't know, man. Like aircon sometimes, bro. Like night, like tonight, it's warm outside, you know. But um, yeah. I, usually I'm right, eh? After I can go for sleep pretty quickly, and then snore the house down. Yeah, well, no one will notice, but you're about 10 minutes late to the podcast while we're waiting for you. We just assumed you were asleep and yeah. the house down. And we were like ragging on you so hard. 
Yeah, maybe I won't crop it and we'll just listen to that. Yeah, <laughs> do it then. Tell me what you really think about <laughs> <laughs> All right, boys, let's get back on topic. Um, we got some questions emailed in, apparently, for our second yeah, episode. Yeah, so... Uh, We're proper famous now. <laughs> we done made it. <laughs> uh, Matt Maloney, so... Matt underscore Maloney, Maloney, ADL 96. <laughs> I'm so Maloney. <laughs> um, we, we love you, Matt. You're not Maloney. <laughs> uh, so here's a question. Um, what made each of you choose your profession? So bodybuilding, fighting, chefing. Um, you want to take us off, Tom? Yeah, I'll Fighter. Just always had an ego. Not not a lot of people know this, mate. Or Crim probably knows this, but I was a bit of a pussy when I was young. And um, mine was probably fear. What do you mean was? Oh, oh I still am a little, <laughs> little bit. Stop it. Don't, stop teasing me. Um, and, that, and that's not to say... Allocation, mate. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I'm non-binary. No. Um, <laughs> essentially, yeah, like I just... Um, I don't know. Just it wasn't like we was very confident and stuff in my life, and in, in that I've always tried to pursue things that that have meant a lot to me. But I came out of a really bad time, and you know, in my teenage years, and I was kind of a bit lost and everything like that. And I had had a few um, situations where I was made to feel very vulnerable, and I couldn't protect myself. Um, and I, I don't know. I think it was that probably that feeling of of being helpless that made me take the step into going into fighting and then I went to training and then within six months or or whatever, I would, I like, I just loved it, fell in love with it, made me feel powerful, made me feel strong, all that sort of stuff and gave me the confidence I didn't have before. And, so, yeah, within six months I was fighting and then, you know, the, the rest was history and I just kept fighting and, and, you know, won more than I lost and I guess the rest was history and that's kind of, <clears throat> that's the catalyst for where I'm, today so do you think the um the confidence was the addiction um i don't know man like if i think back i just think where i remember walking into my first class and coming out basically crawling and just going that was the hardest fucking thing i've ever done you know what i mean but (laughs) it was like a process of of mini achievement where you like i got through that which was like hell and I was constantly just getting through it, like whatever they threw at me. And I think yeah. that built, that probably built in more resilience um, um, in me. And, and I was able, and I kind of thrived off of that. It was like if it was going to test me and like push me to want to quit, and I didn't quit, like I got a sense of confidence and, you know, not power in the traditional sense, but I felt powerful from it. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and essentially, as. You know, I got further and further on. Like I realized I probably had a little bit of natural talent for it, like accompanied with hard hard work, and I was able to to make something out of it. And then, you know, we got into the gym, mate, because like I was disenfranchised with my job in government. The opportunity came, and I started being a PT, and I started out of my shed, and then the rest is history. But it's it's always been a process of conquering fear for me. Always been a process of conquering fear. Always been afraid. Like, you know, I fought guys that were top 10 in the country on eight days' notice and I fought in Russia and Thailand and all that sort of stuff. And that stuff is petrifying. 
But essentially, the thrill was conquering fear and doing things that most people couldn't. Which is awesome. I don't think many people get to a stage where they can attack a fear like that. Yeah, and, and it's defined. It's probably defined the rest of my life where I've, well, I've constantly done things that scare me. And it, I think from from sometimes from fear, like for the funny thing, I think Will Smith talked about it. The 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 thing about being scared about something is that the points of in the lead up are the most fearful. But when you actually do it, and that point, you're it's blissful. You know what I mean? It's it's the opposite. Yeah. So essentially, going the most fear you feel whenever you are scared of doing anything is the lead up, and then when you're in it, you know what I mean? It's bliss or whatever. Yeah, exactly. How did you, how did you feel in, in the moment of your fights? Like, um, I had uh, someone tell me that like when they were doing when they were boxing for uh, like fights, like you know, they say like, oh, the butterflies go away once you get in the ring, but. Had someone tell me that, like, in between rounds, they'd still feel butterflies and shit scared, you know? Like, that dude over there is going to still, like, I don't want to go back out, but i got to. I've got to keep pushing. What was it like for you? Um, oh, I never got the fear in between rounds. Like, everything, like I said, it was all the lead-up. And then when I was, like, walking out there, it was like business. Yeah. It was like business. Like, a couple of times, you know, it, I wouldn't have labelled it as fear. Like, I've been hurt lots in fights where you know, been dropped with a knee or hit with an elbow and you're having internal conversations with yourself about whether you can keep going, you know what I mean? And they're like little micro conversations where you're like, fuck, I could easily quit right now, but I'm not going, but I'm not going to because fuck this dude, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I think the only fears I ever had were like, like in those moments were like, if, I, like, only once I got knocked out, like, the biggest fear I had there was I was woke up and I was laying on the judges' table. Yeah. And then the bruised um, ego after yeah. of being, like, that happening to me in front of my family and friends and whatever. But those things never last. Like, I never felt it during the fight. Like, it was always, like, I don't know. It was kind of, like, robotic. Mm. It's kind of robotic and that you just, like, this is the job I have to do and I'm in it and the adrenaline takes care of any other feeling that you think you may have. Yeah. yeah. And then like, if like, I did at some stage have issues with um, like performance in that I couldn't get myself motivated or couldn't get the adrenaline like to, to meet me, you know what I mean? In the fight, like it kind of, and that's where I found things hurt a lot more and all that sort of stuff. But, it was still robotic, but it essentially is, you go through stages like that where you, you're just not feeling it. You know what I mean? But it doesn't detract you from the fact that you're in there, mate. There's four, there's four, four ropes around you and a thousand people watching you. You know what I mean? you got to do it. Yeah, it's happening. Yeah, it's happening. It's happening. And if you're one of them people, you know, that decides they get too scared before they you know, go, they get to the bloody, do the way and they go to the fight and then they run before they fucking fight. Well, then I don't have any respect for you because, you, you know what I mean? It's that other person's in the same boat. Exactly. And we're all conquering fear and um, that person is ready to conquer theirs and you're robbing them of that opportunity. And I don't know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be in the boat that was going against your boat. 
Yeah, but then it was... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, six times out of ten, I would have said no worries. But the other four times, their their boat was um their boat was rocking a little bit faster than mine. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of times my boat was sleeping, you know. <laughs> um, what about you boys? How did, how did we get into this? Uh, you want to take it off, Karim? Um, yeah. Um, Chefing. Uh, um, I come from, well, my, my father's family uh, is Malaysian and I come from like a long line of cooks and chefs, so, you know, um, I guess my dad's a chef as well, so you can almost say it's in my blood, uh, that cooking and food's in my blood, uh, but I, 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 like, sort of remember quite simply, uh, around about 13 years old, 12, 13 years old or something like that, um, my dad was living down in uh, Portsea, uh, Torrey, and I'd go visit him summer and he was uh chef at the Portsea Hotel which is quite a busy uh, busy joint um and I'd go wash dishes in the dish pit and you know I I was just shit kicking man you know just putting dish, like heaps of plates and sauces everything through but I immediately loved the vibe in the kitchen you know like the camaraderie and you know the fast pace i, I love the heat uh, i love the pressure you know I, I i feel like i perform uh very very well under the pressure you know um and then sort of that summer ended and i went home um and by this stage i think we were living um me and my mum and my sister we were living up in darwin and uh, I wasn't really going to school much, you know, I was just wagging, just, you know, doing what kids do, just running amok. And my mum sort of said, look, if you aren't going to go to school, you have to get a job. This was when I was like 15. Uh, I was like, okay. So I went and got a chef's apprenticeship. And um, once I got my job, I moved out of home. And uh, that was it, man. I did the first year of my apprenticeship at the Darwin, uh, Royal Darwin Hospital and I just basically cut vegetables for months on end. Um, did uh, the first year, then I transferred over to the Darwin Turf Club and that's when I really started to love uh, cooking. Yeah, I uh, worked under a chef called uh, Peter Langford, who's a, he was an absolute legend. Um, and he taught me heaps. By the time I, I was almost in my third year, I was like sort of running the ground, members grandstand kitchen by myself. I just love the pressure, you know. Um, yeah, we were pumping out. Like we'd do Darwin Cup. Uh, we'd have like two, three, four hundred people marquees to do, plus like a ladies' day marquee of like twelve hundred people set menus, and then we'd have like a members grandstand of like a hundred and eighty people, and then like two hundred people on the veranda. So it was just pumping man um yeah and that's when i fell in love with it and i was lucky enough to you know travel australia travel the world cooking and eating and just doing heaps of cool shit you know uh, it all stems from uh you know because deciding to do a chef's apprenticeship man that's where i i believe all my travel and experiences come from uh deciding to get an apprenticeship it's awesome that's great man yeah it's cool 
now I'm down in Adelaide, man, just like hating the nasty. <laughs> <laughs> loving, loving that cold weather. Yeah, nah, it's killer here, man. Like, I never, cold. Thought, I never thought in like in all my travels, you know, because like I, you know, I went over to London, you know, like traveled all through Europe. I've, I've it's, I've been to like over to the Philippines, where onto like islands where no one would speak English, but you know, food was, like, a common ground there. So, like, we would, like, go and, uh, you know, catch a pig and uh, and butcher a pig and, and, and cook it all together. But none of, like, none of them can speak English and I couldn't speak Filipino. But, like, we just had this understanding that we were, you know, bonding through food. Was there a series of grunts and... Yeah. <clears throat> you know, they, like, pierced, they, like, pierced my nose with a bone and stuff, you know. <laughs> yeah. Hey, <laughs> it, it, it was really cool, man. You know, like I had heaps of experiences like that. You know, where I'd just go off the beaten track by myself, and um, yeah, just mix it with the locals. And you know, a lot of the time, not not many of them would speak English or anything like that. And you know, we somehow figured it out, man. You know. Well, you, yeah, I mean, food food's a universal language, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, it is. You know, and beer. Surprisingly, is universal language as well. <laughs> 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 Lots of beer. <laughs> Cerveza. Yeah, yeah. So, no, I mean, it, it's it's been awesome, right, man? But like, I'd never thought I'd end up down here, you know, like just being living such a gypsy lifestyle in the past, you know, just traveling and cooking and shit. Um, but I'm glad I'm here. I love it, you know. I think uh, it's rad. It's awesome. Wonderful. And Joshua, tell us your stories. Um, I guess mine's just kind of gone with the flow. So I played a lot of sports as a kid and um, I started Thai boxing at 13 as well. Did Thai boxing from 13 to about uh, about 17, 18, maybe 19. And then um, football from, I don't know, since I could walk until about 17, 18. And then... Um, Around 18, 19, I just started going to the gym with some mates. And I'd just go occasionally. I didn't, you know, fall in love with it. And then um, I kind of just got into the process. And, you know, these foods are better to eat around training. And you recover better with these foods. And you got to focus on getting enough sleep. And I think that process is what I fell in love with. So um, I wouldn't say I'm a very OCD person, but I do like process and routine and structure. Oh, I, would I, say, I, I would say you love a system, Josh. I like the system, but I'm not OCD. Like, I don't, it doesn't have to be in the same order as long as it's sufficient. So, um, yeah, I think the, the structure is what I fell in love with. And then, um, yeah, then I just, I know that adversity through that training and the discipline has just helped me commit to a lot of other business ventures and things I've pursued, which has gone well. So, what is it that you love about um, training? Oh, the process of it. I mean, it's an, it's an endorphin release. I sleep better when I do it. Um, I like I like setting myself goals. I have a strength for physique goals that I want to achieve. It's, it just kind of, for me, it, it encompasses the, I have business goals, I have physique goals, um, mental goals, spiritual goals, and it's just, you know, just completes the, the whole pattern. What do you do, Josh? That's not planned. It's not planned? Yeah. What do, what do you do for stuff that you haven't structured or planned? His bowel movements. <laughs> <laughs> no, they happen, they happen at 10, 10 sharp every morning. 
No, no, they they can uh, they got a mind of their own. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I've I never have a day that's the same. So I um I was uh, Alico longer than I was gonna be, and then I got pumped and had a client cancel. So I actually, then just did one of our circuit classes, which destroyed me, mm. and then train then train my clients after that, which was another. A client that I shifted, so it was yeah. It all goes day by day, and I didn't know about any of that yesterday. So, mm. so there's um, sponsor, I wasn't, spontaneity to it. Yeah, I was going to start work at six, and then I decided I wanted to go for a walk along the beach, so I started at six thirty. So I went for a half hour walk, which I decided literally as I was driving to work. Mm. So, yeah. So I've got I've got routine like a morning routine on how I get up and I'll always make my bed, and you know I have my Himalayan. Salt with lime and um a good three to five hundred mils of water. Yeah. Shower, go downstairs. Um, I'm actually looking at Wim Hof stuff at the moment with the breathing techniques and um. So you do a breathing technique, basically inhale, exhale up to about fifty times, and then um take your final breath, exhale, and then see how many push-ups you can do, and then just match it each day. So it takes about oh, three or five minutes, but I've just been playing with that. He's quite interesting. Climbed Everest in some shorts. Yeah, I, I actually shared a um, event um, from these guys who who practice the Wim Hof method, who were doing a seminar in Adelaide. I think it might have already been passed, but they kind of just got a van. These guys in Melbourne and just driving across the country, spreading the word that is Wim Hof. Yeah, he's an absolute guru. I mean, he's like a he's like our mystic man from our generation, and um, he's just yeah, he's just a guru. He's just seemed to have hacked the system on. Um, just kind of controlling his own core body temperature and um, his breathing techniques. He can control his heart rate, blood pressure, everything. So, yeah, it's um, it's definitely interesting. There's a lot of research going into it at the moment. Yeah, it's bloody wild, eh? Yeah. Well, I, I think the next bit is probably the most exciting bit of this whole podcast, and that's uh, Karim's got something to tell us. Grim's got a joke, I believe. Yeah, joke of the week. And this, and for people listening and they don't understand why we'd have a joke of the week, it's uh, essentially because Grim was uh, emceeing at a uh, jiu-jitsu tournament and slipped <laughs> and and sl- <laughs> slept in. The crowd the crowd wasn't playing playing ball or getting as hyped up as he would like them to be, and uh, he decided that he would slip in a tranny joke. And if all you trannies, if you're listening out there, um, no no hard feelings. It's um, just we love you. It's just a joke. It's just a joke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Settle down, bro, girl. Yeah, like having two bits. That's 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 hilarious. Um, but yeah, so we decided. Crim's a funny guy, and Crim's got good jokes. So we're going to share one with you. All right. All right. So. <laughs> <laughs> So little, <laughs> you know it's good. He's laughing before. So a little boy with diarrhea tells his mum that he needs a Viagra. His mum asks, "Why on earth do you need a fucking Viagra?" Well, he shouldn't. She's not swearing to his son. <laughs> Anyways, the little boy says, "Isn't that what you give daddy when shit doesn't get hard?" <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it's wrong on so many levels. I don't uh, even know where to start. Uh, but it's all good. It's 
sorry. To no, it's you. not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here you go. This will this will change. So um, I was supposed to open with an interesting fact that's got absolutely nothing to do with food, but I just found it hilarious. Um, in the 1960s, the CIA tried to spy on the Kremlin and Russian embassies by turning cats into listening devices. The program was called Acoustic Kitty, involved surgically implanting batteries, microphones, and an antenna inside cats. I shit you not. <laughs> uh, in, in an hour-long procedure, a veterinary surgeon implanted a microphone in the cat's ear canal, a small radio transmitter at the base of its skull, and a thin wire into its fur. The first acoustic kitty mission was to eavesdrop on two men in a park outside the Soviet compound on Wisconsin Avenue in Washington, D.C. Right? So the cat was released nearby the men, but was hit and killed by a taxi immediately. (laughs) 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 So they they didn't go ahead with the program? No, that's the end of Acoustic Kitty. It just it, it wasn't plausible. Really? Wow. <laughs> and what people uh, don't actually know is that the presidency of the United States wrote a song about that called Kitty. They actually don't realise that <laughs> the skin from that kitten that got hit by that taxi is now worn on Donald Trump's head. <laughs> <laughs> True story. Ah, oh, well, boys, well... We've had a long and fruitful episode today, and uh, I thank you all for your input, as always. And uh, it's that time of the day or night where we have to sign off. So I'd like to thank everyone to Unearthed, and I'm Tom. I'm Grim. And I'm Josh. And stay tuned next week because we've got a whole bunch more of good times coming your way. Peace. Peace. Toodaloo.